Amen. Thank you again. Ephesians chapter 1 in your Bibles tonight. Ephesians chapter 1. Good to see you tonight. This is a wonderful crowd. Again, let me mention a few more books that are available there at the back table. Back in the early 1990s, God awakened me to the futility of the flesh and the necessity of the spirit. And because of that, I began to read certain authors like Andrew Murray and uh, others like A.T. Pearson. And several of them mentioned you need to understand what the Bible says in Romans 14, excuse me, John 14, 15, and 16, because that's when Jesus himself taught on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so I thought, well, enough of these guys are saying this. I need to dive into those three chapters. I also was burdened to get into Acts 1 and 2. It's just 43 days later that Jesus said the Spirit is coming. And then, of course, in Acts 1 and 2, he came. So in uh, 1999 is when God really burdened me to burrow down into those five chapters. And I uh, read them every day uh, for a period of weeks. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't get it. <laughs> and I thought, well, what are these guys talking about? Why is this so important? I just, I just couldn't see past the surface. And I remember I was really uh, getting desperate about it, and I remember crying out to the Lord, Lord, if you don't open my eyes, I will get passed by. And uh, sometime in March, this is about three months into it, two and a half, something like that, I was, uh, uh, had my Bible open, and God began to open my eyes. You know how that is. It was all of a sudden you begin to see well, you read the same words before, and all of a sudden the Spirit of God just opened your eyes, and it was a marvelous time. It was a, it was a precious time. For the next number of months, it just, it just began to unfold and peel back, and, and it, it moved quickly from those chapters into uh, many other chapters, like John 6, and uh, Galatians 2.20 opened up. That's when it opened up for me. And that began to knock open the door of Romans 6, and so on. And uh, a lot of the uh, stirrings that came out of that, a couple of years later, were, uh, uh, I wrote and uh, were printed in this book, one of my earlier books, called The Wind of the Spirit in Personal and Corporate Revival. It's really an introduction to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The inheritance you received when you were born again and the Spirit moved in, opening the way for the filling of the Spirit. So there's a whole section of the book that deal, deals with the filling. That would be more on the personal revival level. And then the last few chapters are dealing with the outpouring of the Spirit when God manifests His presence in the atmosphere and those corporate revivals, a lot of history given in those chapters. Many of the other books on the table take uh, concepts in this book and expand them in more detail. That's why I call this one more of an introduction. Uh, there's a brand new book. It's only been out a couple of months called Repentance and Faith. Uh, two sides to one decision. Did you notice the difference between the size of my earlier books <laughs> and my later books? Uh, uh, I see people pick this one up and put it right back down, but uh, at any rate, so they're getting smaller. But uh, this one is dealing with the, the concept of repentance and faith. Is salvation one step or two? Or is it two emphases to one essence? That's why I have the subtitle there, Two Sides to One Decision. If repentance is made something other than faith, then you're back into works. But repentance is a different emphasis than faith. So how does this work for salvation? How does it move on into the movement of sanctification or Christian growth? And so we're dealing with a lot of different angles that affect a lot of different things in our lives. And so that's what that little book is dealing with. There is a biography on the table called The Prayer That Makes a Difference. It's of my grandmother, one of the dear ladies in one of our meetings in Phoenix who has a publishing house, got burdened to write my grandmother's story. She saw really precious answers to prayer. But you do need to understand she was a regular person who learned to trust in a great God and had that simple childlike faith. And so that is uh, a brief 
uh, biography of her life. Well, tonight, Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, we're going to look here in just a moment. Sunday morning, we saw a beautiful picture of faith, the strong tower. Sunday night, we saw the importance of the focus on the person, uh, not outcome, but the person. And so last night, we saw that person who has moved into us, implanting his nature in us so that uh, his life can be brought into us by his spirit, that's Christ in us, providing us with his overcoming life for down here to have victory over the world and the flesh. But what about the unseen realm? What about the spirit or spiritual, not physical, but spiritual realm. This is the us in Christ truth. And so tonight, let's dive into this, Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, it's neat, Pastor Nick prayed uh, some of the very things we'll see here in this text tonight. Look at verse 3, it says, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, what a statement, who has blessed us. Now notice that's past tense. Not just will, though that's true, but who has blessed us, with every spiritual blessing. My friends, that's, an, that's a comprehensive statement that's stunning. That if you are a child of God, blessed be God, because he has blessed us with every, not some, every, but notice the qualification here, spiritual blessing. It doesn't say physical. It says spiritual blessing. Where, where do we already have, have this? Notice the next phrase. It says in the heavens. Now, what's interesting, uh, some of the uh, old preachers would refer to this as in the heavenlies. Uh, some translations say in heavenly places. It's fascinating that in chapter 6, when you have spiritual host of wickedness in high places, your CSB translated this, translates it the same because it is the same. Spiritual host of wickedness in the heavens. You see, it's a realm. It's the spirit realm, the heaven realm, uh, where there is God, where there's the Holy Spirit, but there are spirits, there are spiritual hosts of wickedness in that realm. So where then, in that realm, do we have every spiritual blessing? Look at the last two words, in Christ. <laughs> you see, it's the part of that spirit realm where Christ is, that Colossians 3 uh, puts focus on. It's a marvelous truth. Well, you jump down to verse 15, he starts praying for these Ephesian saints, saints. And then you get uh, uh, to what uh, was prayed tonight, uh, verse 18, uh, that, uh, that uh, we, our hearts and our eyes would be enlightened. You know, he's writing an inspired letter, but he knew that without the help of the Holy Spirit, these Ephesian saints would not get this. And we won't either without the help of the Holy Spirit, but with the help of the Holy Spirit, yes, you can understand the Grand Canyon realities of truth that connect to the words that we're about to see tonight. So he prays that the eyes of their heart may be enlightened so that you may know, know experientially what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints. See, this is incredible uh, what he's stating here and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power to us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength. He exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand. Now notice where? In the heavens, in that spiritual realm. But where in that realm? Next verse, far above, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion and every title given, not only in this age but also in the one to come. 
and has subjected everything under, see that's authority, his feet, and appointed him as the head, that's authority, over everything for the church, which is his body. That's amazing. The fullness of the one. See, he's our fullness. But he says the church is his fullness. That's amazing. Who fills all things in every way. Chapter 2, verse 1, and you. See, he's not done. Chapter 1 is a Grand Canyon portion of Scripture. It's phenomenal. And we often miss, because of the chapter break here, the connection. It says, and you. Look at verse 6. He also raised us up. See, in chapter 1, God displayed his power raising Christ up. And now it says, and also has raised us up with him and seated us. See, it talked in chapter 1 about Christ being seated at the right hand. That's the Father's right hand. That's the throne. That's authority. And here in chapter 2, verse 6, it says, and seated us with him in the heavens. There's that realm. Where in that realm? In Christ Jesus. You see, as we saw last night, when you got baptized into Christ, cheer in him. And therefore, if he in his glorified body is seated at the right hand of the Father and you're in him, you're there. The title of the message tonight is A Throne Seat. Ah, oh, blessed Spirit, open our eyes as we have seen in this text, as has been prayed tonight. Oh, open our eyes to see the truth, the realities of truth that connect to these words. Nurture faith, Lord. Give us wisdom. Equip us to deal with the unseen spirit realm. And Lord, give us confidence in your authority that we might exercise your authority over the enemy in those times when we must. And so, Lord, I plead the very victory of Jesus that was won at the cross when he said it is finished. And through his shed blood, won the victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil. And in your name, Lord, I exercise your authority over any powers of darkness that would seek to hinder in this hour. And trust you that that not be allowed. Lord, breathe on us tonight. Use truth to make a difference in the days and weeks and months and years to come for your glory. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. In December of 1949, Duncan Campbell went to the island of Lewis off the northwest coast of Scotland for what he thought was going to be a 10-day meeting, but God came down. God stepped down from heaven, and the 10-day meeting turned into a three-year move of God as he traveled from village to village across that island. Early in that great revival called the Lewis Revival of 60 years ago, there was a teenager. His name was Donald McPhail. 16 years of age, April 1950, in the village of Arnoll. Uh, the Spirit of God moved there in that village as well, and that's when he put his faith in Jesus. He was born again. Well, in the atmosphere of the presence of God, you can grow quickly. And he literally was discipled quickly, grew quickly. Uh, there was a number of intercessors involved in that revival. There were some ladies. There were also what was called the praying men of Barvis. Barvis was the village where the revival started. And uh, he soon, as he grew in the Lord, joined the praying men. Well, when Duncan Campbell would go to other towns uh, as the Lord opened the door and preach, sometimes it would, there'd be a battle in that spiritual realm. Sometimes it was difficult, and he would call for the praying men. And it's wonderful to see how God used this. Well, on one occasion, he was in a village, uh, and uh, it was hard sledding, as they used to say. Uh, it was difficult atmosphere, tedious, hard to preach. Every preacher knows what this is like. 
And Duncan Campbell uh, was having a great difficulty, so he called for the praying men of Barbas to come. Well, they came, the intercessors. Well, Donald McPhail, the teenager, now 17 or perhaps 18 years of age, was there with them. Well, one night as Duncan Campbell was preaching, the atmosphere was so heavy, so thick, because there was still no breakthrough, even though the praying men had come and they were praying. In the middle of the sermon, he decided, this is ridiculous, and he was just going to shut down and dismiss. I have felt like doing that a few times, but I've never had the guts to do it. (laughs) Because it just was, you know, so difficult to preach. And so Duncan Campbell stopped preaching. He was ready to dismiss, and he saw the tall teen. I've been to the building. It's a small little auditorium. And Donald McPhail was six foot six. So Campbell noticed this tall teenager there seated in the audience and noticed that he was in tune with God. As Campbell puts it in an audio recording, that young man was nearer to God than I was. And instead of dismissing, he said, Donald, would you lead us in prayer? And this young man, the tall teen, stood up. And he began to pray that morning in the providence of God. He had been reading in Revelation 4 the description of Jesus as the Lamb seated on the throne. (laughs) Worthy is the Lamb. And he referenced that scene in his prayer. And then he cried out, Oh God, I seem to be gazing through an open door. I see the Lamb seated on the throne. And he broke into sobs. And then he cried out one more time. Oh God, there's power there. Let it loose. And in that moment, the powers of darkness The powers of the air that were hindering in the atmosphere were banished as God tore through the heavens and rent the heavens and came down. And now the power of the Spirit was displayed with absolutely no interference in the atmosphere. And when that kind of atmosphere takes place, then the truth of the Word of God has no hindrance. It has free course. It's glorified. It's given its weight. And the truth of God came down on those very same hearts uh, without any interference. And immediately those that were not right with God literally began to cry out to God for mercy. And the revival came came to that town. Now, friends, what is that? This was not a preacher of 60 years who'd been, you know, in Africa and whatever and, you know, exercising authority. This was a teenager. Saved less than two years. And the powers of darkness were banished. And God moved. You see, that's throne seat authority. And we must ask ourselves... Are we exercising, am I exercising throne, seat, authority as God would have me to? So obviously, we need to ask ourselves, well, what is the basis for this? Because it cannot be wishful thinking, or you can get yourself in big trouble. What is the Bible basis for exercising throne, seat, authority? 
Well, I want us to see tonight that the scripture provides three realities that you and I must comprehend and then take by faith as the basis for exercising throne seat authority. Number one, comprehend the person of authority. We just read about him here in chapter 1. Uh, Jesus raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of the Father. It is this Jesus who not long before that event in Ephesians 1 was here on this earth and he died on the cross and he rose again and then a couple of weeks later before he ascended, Matthew 28 verse 18, Jesus said, all authority, all authority has been given unto me. Not will be, it has been. You see, Jesus was given all authority. There's something that happened through the death and resurrection that causes him to say, all authority is given unto me. And then he ascended, and then he was enthroned at the right hand of the Father, as we read about in Ephesians chapter 1. You see, he is the person we must look at. And this whole matter of spiritual warfare, one of the great errors and deceptions and dangers is focusing on the enemy. That'll get you in big trouble. Now, you focus on the victor. His name is Jesus. He is the conquering king. Now, as we consider this, Christ is the king with all authority. Let's talk about this. What do we mean when we say that? Well, when God created the heavens and the earth, God, uh, when he created mankind, delegated the kingdom of earth to man, to Adam. And to Eve, Ephesians, or excuse me, uh, Genesis 1, 26, and God said, let us make man in our image and let them have dominion. See, that's authority over all the earth and specifically says fish, birds, cattle, and every creeping thing, which means when the serpent came into the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had the authority to say, in the name of the Lord, be gone. But tragically, they did not exercise that authority that had been delegated to them. And more tragically, Adam legally delivered the kingdom of earth right over to Satan. For in obeying Satan's lie, Adam and Eve did not become like God, as Satan had deceitfully promised. No, they became Satan's slaves. Romans 6, 16 says, His slaves you are to whom you obey. So when Adam became Satan's slave, Satan became the owner of all that Adam possessed. That was the kingdom of earth. And it was at that moment when Satan became the god of this world. Let's jump years uh, uh, into the, from that point onward into Luke chapter 4 when you have the temptation of Christ. And Satan showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. And we're told that the devil said to Jesus, all this authority I will give you and the glory of them. For it has been delivered unto me, and whoever I will, I give it. If you will worship me, all of this will be yours. Now, in order to package an effective lie, you have to misuse some truth. 
And the truth that Satan misused, but it was the truth, is that the kingdom of earth had been delivered unto him. We read about it in Genesis 1. And as Satan sought to get the first Adam to obey him rather than God, he then sought to get the last Adam to obey, obey him rather than God, with a very similar line. But what Satan achieved with the first Adam, he failed to accomplish with the last Adam, Jesus. However, since the kingdom of earth had been legally delegated or delivered, excuse me, delivered over to Satan, it would have to be legally regained. Now here's the good news. Jesus Christ legally regained the kingdom of earth. But to do so, sin had to be atoned for. The wages of sin had to be paid in order for the authority of Satan to be broken. And as far back as Genesis 3, right in that very event uh, uh, that we referred to, you have that great prophecy that the day would come when the seed of the woman, Jesus, would bruise the head of the serpent, Satan. And tell you, I'm going to tell you something, friends. For us, that's past tense. That happened at the cross. It is very significant to note that just a few hours before the cross, Jesus said in John 16, 11, the prince of this world is judged. John 12, 31, again referring to the cross. Now the prince of this world will be cast out. Hebrews 2, 14 tells us that Jesus, through death, through that death of the cross, uh, rendered ineffective him who had the power of death. That is the devil. In Colossians 2, 14 and 15, again referring to the cross, we're told that Jesus disarmed principalities and powers and made a public show of them triumphing over them in it and so we read even in the future in revelation 12 11, that they the saints overcame him the devil by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony you see without the shedding of blood there's no forgiveness of sins but that blood was shed when Jesus poured out his blood. He poured out his life in death that you and I might have life. And there on the cross, as we saw last night, he said, it is finished. And according to Hebrews 1 and verse 3, the scripture says that when he, Jesus, by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's what we're reading about in Ephesians chapter 1. You see, Jesus was enthroned. All authority was given unto him. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne, far above all principality and power. You see, at that moment, sin was atoned for. The wages of sin were paid at the cross. And Jesus, through the cross, legally regained the kingdom of earth so that Jesus is now the reigning king in heaven and will someday reign on this old planet Earth. Now, he's not reigning on Earth at the moment. <laughs> he is reigning in heaven. Now, a king must of necessity have a kingdom. And a kingdom involves subjects and a realm. Who are the subjects in Christ's kingdom? Colossians 1.13 says, Who has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Through the new birth, through faith in Jesus, we get translated from the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of God's dear son. Friend, are you in the right kingdom? Through faith in Jesus. 
That's the subjects, believers in Jesus, but what is the realm? Christ won everything at the cross, but he has chosen in his sovereign wisdom to take the kingdom that he already won in stages. The present kingdom is not physical. It is a spiritual realm. Matthew 12, 28, Jesus said, If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is coming to you. You see, the present kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. It's a spiritual realm. The present dominion is manifested primarily in the spiritual realm, not the physical realm. However, where the spiritual realm interpenetrates into the physical realm, like demon possession, when authority is exercised in the spiritual realm, there will be a ramification manifested in the physical realm. But the present realm is spiritual, not physical. If you don't get that, you get messed up, as some have. The future kingdom will be both spiritual and physical. There's a coming kingdom when Jesus is going to set up his reign right here on earth. Can you imagine? Now, that realm is physical, but it's also spiritual. Books like Isaiah and Revelation tell us a lot about that. And it's fascinating that what will be true in the physical kingdom on earth is true right now in the spiritual kingdom. And that is why there are so many verses in books like Isaiah that have such rich application now in the spiritual realm like I will pour water on him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground I will pour out my spirit which was the foundation of faith for the Lewis revival I just told you about well that's Isaiah and what will be true physically is true right now in the spirit realm so first of all comprehend the person of authority now secondly comprehend the position of authority this is fascinating there's two thoughts that we need to grab a hold of here. Obviously, let's start with Christ's position. Going back to chapter 1 and verse 19, the scripture tells us, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power, that is the word dunamis, sometimes you hear the word dynamite, it's really more the idea of ability, God's divine supernatural ability. So verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his ability toward us who believe according to the mighty, that's sheer strength, working, that's energy of his strength, that's his dominion. Now, in the Greek language, there are six words that could be translated power in the English language. They're synonyms. Four of the six are in that text. That text uses more power words to describe an event than any other text in the entire Word of God. God's ability. God's sheer strength. God's energy. God's dominion. Well, what was it describing? <laughs> Look at the next verse. He exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead. Let me stop right there. Why was that so significant? I mean, obviously it's Jesus, but now wait a second. Were there not other individuals raised from the dead in the Old Testament? Yes. Widow's son and so forth. Did not Jesus raise people from the dead in the Gospels? Yes. So why the power display for this resurrection? This is the first resurrection where a human body was raised to a glorified body. 
making Jesus the firstborn from the dead, as Colossians tells us. So God displayed this mighty power. Now I want you to think with me. When he raised Christ from the dead, it does seem to imply that perhaps there was a battle over the body in the unseen realm. Now, the power display is not because this was going to be hard for God. There's nothing hard for God. Well, why the power display? Well, you remember, well, some of you don't remember, but 1989, some of us remember uh, when the United States uh, went into Iraq to, and uh, the Persian Gulf War of 89, uh, we had all the military branches going in there uh, like this was World War III, and most of them weren't even needed. It was a power display. Well, friends, I'm going to tell you something. God displayed his mighty power when he raised Christ from the dead. And look at this in verse 20. And seating him at his right hand. That's the throne. That's authority in the heavens, far above all principality and power and uh, so forth. So that's Christ's position, the enthroned Christ far above the enemy. But the second thought is the and you. As we see in verse 1, and then the details are spelled out in verse 6. Let, I mean, let us look at them again. Uh, he also raised us up with him. So God displayed his mighty power when he raised Christ and us. Now think about this. And it goes on to say, and seated us. This is amazing. With him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. You see, when God raised Christ, he raised us up in Christ. And when he seated Christ at the throne, he seated us in Christ at the throne. You see, because of necessity, the head and the body must be raised together. And that is the imagery in the final two verses of chapter 1. You see, God displayed his mighty power because he wasn't just raising up Jesus. He was raising up us in Christ. And he wasn't just seating Jesus at his own right hand. He was seating us in him at that same time throne. Wow. Do you realize in the spirit dimension you're on the throne because you're in Jesus? This is stunning. This is like, this is amazing. You see, the spiritual realm does not have the geographical boundaries and constrictions that we have in the physical realm. And by the way, this is why you can do battle with the powers of darkness on the other side of planet Earth from right here as if you were there. Because we don't have the geographical boundaries. This is amazing. We saw it last night. When you put your faith in Jesus, you were baptized into Jesus. You're in him. And friends, that means if he's on the throne at the right hand of the Father, you're there. That is not figurative language. It is literal. It's just that it's spiritual, not physical. But it's just as real as if we're physical. Right now, we're in Fresno, California, physically. But friends, in the spirit realm, you're at the throne. You are in Christ on that very throne. Ruth Paxson, Missionary China, 1930s, puts it this way. In Christ, we are as far above the powers of darkness as Christ is. That is staggering. And here's what's amazing. Authority had been delegated to Adam. He delivered it to Satan. Jesus legally regained it. 
and we delegated it. Not to planet Earth, humankind. It's in the Great Commission, all authority has been given unto me. Go, therefore. The redelegation of that authority is to God's people. Saints. The church. Which is his body. See, he's the head, the church is the body. He redelegated authority to the church. Now, let me ask you a question. Can a body function without a head? <laughs> I've seen a few chickens try. <laughs> you know, and they run around like, hey, well, they're not just like, they're, they're a chicken with their head cut off. Okay. Uh, but, you know, those bodies finally drop. <laughs> it is hilarious to see them run around. No, a body cannot function without a head. It eventually drops. Well, does a head function without a body? Now, this is fascinating. Jesus is the head. We are the body. That is the imagery that the inspired text gives us. As the body, we cannot function without Jesus, the head. He, as the head, has chosen not to function without us, the body. He could have done this however he wanted to. He's the sovereign. But in his sovereign wisdom, he's the head, we're the body. And as we cannot function without him, the head, he does not function without us, the body. This is incredible privilege that we're going to get to here in just a moment. It's delegated authority. John McMillan in his book, uh, The Authority of the Believer, 1932, I think, uh, publication, uh, uses the illustration of a police officer in uniform. You know, he's got the badge and he's directing traffic and then here comes a truck that's big enough to just flatten him and he goes like this. Now physically, he can't stop that truck. It's not physical power, but there's authority because of the badge. He has delegated power to go like that and stop the truck. Now friends, you and I, on our own without Jesus, we're no match to Satan, but we're not on our own. And we have the privilege of submitting ourselves to God and resisting the devil. And he doesn't have to just stop, he has to flee the other way. That's how a teenager could see what happened in the Lewis revival. The enemy was all over that place. Campbell's getting ready to just close down the service. And a teenager got up, submitting himself to God, resist the devil, and the devil had to get out! Yeah. Now, friends, that brings us to the third truth here. Not only comprehend the person of authority, that's the key, and the position of authority, but now comprehend the privileges of this position in this person. You see, verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? And that is in the present tense. Those who believe and believe again and believe again, they keep believing. In other words, it's, it's continuous. It's not just a one-time thing. This is something that we have opportunity for and responsibility for uh, over and over again to those who keep believing. They can access this, this immeasurable greatness of his power and this mighty working of his strength if we keep believing. 
Now, what does that mean? Because obviously that is telling us there's some responsibility here. You know, in the context of the enemy, of the devil, in Matthew 12, verse 29, Jesus said, or else, how can one enter a strong man's house, the strong man referring to the devil, and spoil or plunder his goods, except he, the individual, first bind the strong man. Then he will plunder his house. Who did the binding? The individual. Have you ever noticed what Jesus said in Matthew 18? It's an amazing context. Uh, you have, you know, if there's an offense and you go to the guy and he doesn't uh, respond and you bring a couple others and then you bring it to the church and so on. Then following it, you got a, uh, an amazing passage on forgiveness. But right in the middle of it, you have some amazing verses of where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. Well, the verse that's often overlooked in all of this because there's connections to all of these physical things and problems where there's need to get right with God or get right with people and forgiveness and so on and to see answers uh, from heaven. You have Matthew 18, verse 18, where Jesus said, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. The CSB translates that uh, very accurately. That's the verb tense. Whatsoever, whatever you bind on earth will have already been bound in heaven. Why? Because Jesus already won this at the cross. But it has to be accessed and applied by faith or you miss out on the full benefit. And whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Whoa. You know, it's time the enemy get bound and people get loosed. So they have a chance to hear. See, that atmosphere gets, gets interfered with. Satan tempts and he interferes with ministry. He's the hinderer. See, interferer. Okay, and so what happens is there are times when the enemy's got to be dealt with. Now, I recognize some people go beyond what the Bible says here, and, you know, they're binding this and that and the other and whatever, uh, and, and, and that, it makes people afraid of what I'm talking about. But you can't have a counterfeit unless there's something real to counterfeit. And while some misuse the truth, others non-use the truth. Both are missing out. You see, we often are asking God to do what he's telling us to do. It's his authority. Don't miss that. It's not yours. It's his. But you have to exercise it. Just like the angel in Jude who would not bring a railing accusation against the enemy, but did say, the Lord rebuke you. See, it was the Lord's authority, but he exercised it. And we have the same responsibility to exercise Christ's authority over the enemy. And let me just say, you'll never be able to do this if you're walking in the flesh. Otto Koning, famous for the pineapple story, uh, in his dealing with spiritual warfare, points out that you cannot resist Satan if you are listening to Satan in some way. You see, in Ephesians, this same book, we have that verse over in chapter 4 that says, neither give place to the devil. You know what that implies? He can't take it unless you give it. 
And just like the Holy Spirit will not violate a man's will, he'll convict and convince to make a person willing, but he won't violate a man's will, God does not let the enemy violate our will either. Praise the Lord. But tragically, we can give place to devil, and when you cave into your flesh, and in that very context in Ephesians 4, it talks a lot about anger. See, anger can get to the point that it's giving ground to the enemy. Lust is another big one. Uh, bitterness is mentioned there in Ephesians 4, and all the resentment and uh, listening to the accuser. There's various ways we can give place to the devil. And you know, if we're walking in the flesh, if we're caving in uh, to the enemy's lies uh, and walking in darkness, obviously we're not going to be able to exercise throne seat authority. But if we find ourselves in that tragic position of caving into the flesh and walking in darkness, we can walk in the light and agree with God. And wherever we've given ground, wherever we have uh, 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 caved in and pandered to our flesh or indulged our flesh, we can walk in the light, as uh, 1 John 1 says, and by confession, by honestly agreeing with God, agreeing with light. Yep, that's a dirty mess. Even though we're not dirt balls, if we ignore our provision, yep, as we saw last night, we can make dirty messes. And when we walk in the light and get honest about it, the blood of Jesus comes rushing in like a tsunami and cleans us all up. And when that happens, you can go back to walking in the Spirit, trusting His leadership and His power, and that's when you can war from the throne. It's not based on how long you've been saved. It's not based on how mature you are in the Lord. It's not based on how long you've been right with God and cleansed. It's based on the fact that there's nothing between and you can immediately exercise throne seat authority, just like the teenager did. <laughs> wow. Amazing. Now, let me again say, the authority of the believer is in the spiritual realm, not the physical realm. So when some people are, you know, commanding trees and birds and whatever, they're, I don't mean to be unkind, but, but they're missing it. Now, again, when there is the interpenetration between the spiritual realm and the physical realm, we can exercise authority in the spiritual realm, and yes, it will have that domino manifestation effect in the physical realm but the authority is in the spiritual realm keep that uh let's keep that clear so now let's apply it this can be applied defensively it can be applied offensively in this very book in chapter six it talks about the shield of faith that can quench literally extinguish all the fiery darts of the enemy wow what are those <laughs> well you know a lot of temptation is stuff that we can see it's a picture it's a billboard, it's a sound, uh, it's a smell. <laughs> you know, there's all sorts of temptation that is in the physical realm. That's not a fiery dart. Fiery darts are when you're tempted and you can't see it or hear it or feel it or smell it. <laughs> it is in the unseen realm. You ever been at work or at home and you're focused on something, you know, you're enjoying yourself and all of a sudden a vile train of thought comes rolling across your brain. It's not because you saw anything or heard, there was no trigger in the physical realm, but all of a sudden these vile thoughts are there. Well, where'd they come from? That's the enemy. Throwing those fiery darts right into your soul. Often it's the mind like that. Sometimes it's the emotions. Ever found yourself in this bad mood? 
said that once and everybody looked at a certain person. <laughs> uh, but, uh, uh, but you're in this dark mood and you stop and think about it and it's not like anything bad happened that would tempt you to get discouraged. Okay, it's a fiery dart. And you know we have the privilege of taking our position in Christ at the throne and rejecting the fiery dart. You know what that is? It's lifting up the shield of faith. I am in Christ, far above the enemy. Satan, you don't have a right to do this. I claim my position. I reject this. See, you're taking and you're acting, just like we saw last night in the physical realm, Christ in us. You take him, and then you act on it, and you experience his patience, his love, his purity. In the same way in the unseen realm, you take him, this time you in him, instead of him in you, that you are in him, far above the enemy, and you reject that dark mood. You reject that vile pattern of thought that just came across your mind. You don't need to confess it. You need to reject it. Temptation is not sin. Jesus was tempted, yet without sin. It's only when we enter into temptation that it becomes sin. So that this vile pattern of thought came across your brain, that's not sin. And so you have the privilege of saying, <laughs> That's the enemy. I claim my position in Jesus. I reject that. And you're free. Because that shield of faith quenches. It puts out the fiery darts of the enemy. See, you have just submitted yourself to what God says. You've resisted the devil. He's got to go. You know, this can make a difference. <laughs> this is amazing. Satan is a deceiver. One of his great deceptions is distortion. So fiery darts, that's when it's just in the unseen realm, period. Distortion is when he takes something in the physical realm and distorts it. It's as if in the spiritual realm he puts a magnifying glass over something and it becomes excessive. Somebody says something to you that was a little abrasive, but, you know, quite frankly, no big deal. Don't get bent out of shape about it. Uh, uh, but if it's magnified then you don't see it as a little bump on the road. You see it as a mountain-sized offense. And if you don't discern, have discernments of spirits, and you don't realize what's going on, and you respond to this person as if they just committed a mountain-sized offense, and all the fury and anger and carnality that that can bring out of you, and they're looking at you thinking, man, what's the matter with you? Wow. I, you know, this has got to be at the bottom of a lot of church splits. See, excessiveness, distortion, magnification, it's the sign of the enemy's involvement. How about excessive fear? Wow. Macmillan tells the story there in China where he and his son were on a boat in a large river and a, a storm whipped up. And normally his son, you know, enjoyed the storms, but he was petrified. And it was just unlike him. And it was excessive. And McMillan said, you know, wait a second, this is the enemy. This is, this is not how my son normally responds. And so, on behalf of the son, the father said, God, I claim my position in you. And if this is the enemy stirring up this excessive fear in my son, I exercise your authority over the powers of darkness doing this. And at that moment, the son got calmed down and was fine. The next day, they had a far worse storm, and he was on the upper deck enjoying it. <laughs> How about excessive anger? Now we can all get 
frustrated, I understand. But you know, excessive anger needs to be recognized that, wait a second, the enemy got in here. It's not just flesh. It's magnifying. I remember one time I was spitting mad. I mean, <laughs> I shouldn't laugh about it because it's wicked. But uh, at any rate, I was so mad. I mean, I was, oh, my God, oh, wow. And I remember thinking to myself, okay, what am I mad about? Oh, man, is that all? It was some small thing that had been distorted. And I thought, oh, come on. You just caved in to Satan's distortion, and you preach on this. You see, friends, this is real. A lady in one of our meetings in Pennsylvania grabbed a hold of this truth. She worked at a, a home for uh, uh, some handicapped adult women. Uh, they had some Down's, home, down, uh, a Down's uh, syndrome uh, ladies there. And she said often when they would get mad, it would last all day. And she thought, well, that's excessive. I wonder if this is what's going on. So the next night she comes running to me. She says, I got to tell you what happened. She said, sure enough, one of the ladies got angry and she says, normally this would go on for hours. And I just put my arm around her and said, you got to come with me. <laughs> and walked into another room and said, Lord, I'm claiming my position in you on the throne. If the enemy's stirring this girl up, I exercise your authority over what's going on and I claim your victory. She said, you know what happened? The lady come right down, went back out and was fine the rest of the day. She said, that never happens. We need discernment on this, don't we, folks? This is provision. This is God's equipping of the saints. It's all sorts of things that are along these lines. It's not just defense. Sometimes it's offense. Sometimes it can be a combination of both. I remember being in the country of Cambodia, and we were going to do some ministry, some gospel services out near the Vietnam border. It's way out in the country. And uh, there was a blind pastor uh, that uh, uh, was organizing these gospel services. And in, that, uh, in his town, they were on the outskirts of the town. In his town, there was no Buddhist temple. It was too far out in the country. And uh, they didn't even have the little, uh, I don't even know what they're called. There's a little thing that they have that if they don't have a temple, that's what they do with Buddhism. But at any rate, uh, when the Buddhists found out that we were going to have gospel services, they decided to set one of those up in a spot where everybody coming from the town out to the outskirts of town uh, to the meeting would have to pass by their booth. They got a loudspeaker and were blaring at unbelievable volume a very guttural sounding gibberish. I do not know what it was. I do not mean to be unkind. It was not pretty. And it was so loud as we're setting up the chairs and stuff we're thinking this isn't going to work. We're not going to be able to out-preach this sound. And then we got to thinking, you know what? We wrestle not against flesh and blood. This is the enemy. And so a couple of us got together. Now, friends, we're nothing, but Jesus is everything. He has all authority, but we have to exercise it. And the best we understood, we exercise his authority over the powers of darkness seen seeking to hinder. See, Satan's a hinderer to interfere with the ministry that day. You know, within three minutes, the sound shot off. That it was never turned on again. We had two gospel services and 70 people put their faith in Jesus. Hey, hey. See, this is real. 
I think of a Russian girl that had just come into our country and her parents didn't want her in our public schools. I wonder why. Uh, but at any rate, uh, uh, you can go there if you do it right. But nonetheless, uh, they put her uh, in this Christian school. I was preaching at chapel and she's there in the front row and she looked like she was 18 though she was 12. And uh, uh, so she would raise her hand in chapel. Well, you're not supposed to do that, you know, and so all the other kids would laugh. But thankfully they were behind her and she couldn't see that. And so I'd call on her and let her ask her question, answer her question, you know. And two or three days I'm preaching away and she's asking her questions and everybody else is giggling. And, and so this girl girl and I are having this dialogue through the preaching. <laughs> well, finally, she raises her hand at the end of the service saying, I need to trust Jesus. Amen. I said, if you want to trust Jesus, you stay back. She did. So the uh, teacher and the uh, school principal, they were very close by praying. I'm talking to this girl, walking her through the gospel, being as thorough as I knew how uh, she had just come here from Russia. And uh, so trying to make it very clear to understand sin is the problem. Judgment is the consequence. Christ alone is the answer. He died for our sins. He rose again. You've got to transfer your trust to him alone to apply that salvation to you. And when you do, you have eternal life. Well, she was right with me, you know, just, just hungry. And then when we got to what we would call the invitation one-on-one, -on -one, her face physically got distorted. That was odd. Her eyes got glazed, and she could no longer comprehend and think straight. And it finally hit me, wait a second. There's a battle for her soul right here in front of my eyes. And I looked at her and said, do you mind if I pray? And with those glazed eyes, she said, okay. Very different than her personality had been. Now, friends, I'm going to tell you something. I am not anything. I know that. And apart from Jesus, I can make a big fat mess, and I've done it way too many times. But I'm going to tell you something. We're not apart from Jesus. And by faith, we can claim our position in him. That's not us naming it and claiming it. It's he named it so that we can claim it. See, there's divine initiation. And when the Spirit of God stirs you that, wait a second, this is one of those moments. You need to, you need to trust me here. I claimed... Uh, the best I knew, his authority, uh, my position in him and exercise his authority over the powers of darkness, messing this girl up. And when I look back up, guess what? Her face was no longer contorted. I reviewed the gospel and said, since Jesus is willing to save you, are you willing to put your faith in him right now? She said, yes. <laughs> and put her faith in Jesus. Yeah. Friends, that's real. That is real. Now, you don't have to go out and look for this stuff. You just need to know what to do when it comes to you. Ruth Paxton, who I mentioned earlier, suggests that heads of households begin the day when they put their feet on the floor. God, I claim our position in you on the throne for our family and exercise your authority for protection. You know, it was interesting. I was with a pastor whose daughter had gotten messed up. The doctors had asked her to take a particular drug, and it, it messed with her, and it, it led to... Uh, becoming addicted, it led to sin, and it was a big mess. And so now she had a, uh, a toddler, and, and she's in their home, and she was often angry and always disturbing, and they were just under the duress of this tragic scenario. And I remember seeking to apply this truth in a prayer meeting, and nothing really happened. I I asked him the next day, was anything different? He said, no, still a mess last night. Well, a day or two later, I preached on this, and guess what? He applied the truth. And guess what? She was radically affected for good. And the point of that is, she was not under my authority. She was under his. Ooh. 
And yet, ah, <laughs> there is help here. See, God just wants us to be equipped to know what we can do and ought to do. And the reality is Satan has stolen far too much ground, has he not? He walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He's not the lion. He's, he's walking about as if he were, and he roars and seeks to cause fear and tries to devour. He is a destroyer. He is a murderer. And the f truth of the matter is he is after individuals. He is after marriages. He is after families, and he is after churches through his primary avenues of temptation as well as interference with ministry. And it is time we recognize that he is a deceiver and he is a liar. He is the accuser and the tempter and the hinderer, and we are not left without help. We are in Christ who is on that throne far above the enemy, and we're in him. And we have the privilege of exercising by faith his authority as we claim, take our position in him and exercise his authority over the enemy. That's throne seat authority. Let's revel in God. Let's praise him for what he has given us. And perhaps he has shown, shown you some areas where you've been baffled. Why did this happen? Why did this happen? And now perhaps you're seeing, oh wait, that was distortion. That was this. And if we've given ground, let's get honest. Let's walk in the light right now. And let the blood of Jesus clean us up. And let's go back to walking in the Spirit so where we need to, we can war from the throne. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Friend, if you need to walk in the light about something, get it right with God. It's not worth it to not be in ready position to deal with the enemy. If there's been some area where you've recognized, oh, that's what's going on, then talk to God about it. But ultimately, let's start praising God for what already is, what already has been provided. And let's ask the Holy Spirit to bring truth to mind when we need it so that we can apply it, so that we can take and act on what He has given us by our position in Christ. So take a moment to talk to the Lord, even now. Lord, we praise you that you have given us already every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. Lord, give us understanding. Give us the eyes to see your ability and strength and energy and dominion and that you are the head and we are the body. And Lord, may we ever remember that it's your authority, not ours, but that it's our responsibility to exercise it. We thank you, Lord, for this privilege. May we respond in faith those moments when that is the need, that Jesus and his authority may be glorified as king. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.